0: welcome to the republican professor this morning for me we have dr stephen hallbrook joining us from virginia welcome
1: thank you for having me lucas glad to be on the program
0: and we have a guest host today tobin hobbs joining us from orange county california tobin welcome. thank you
2: for having me and uh i'm sorry to bring down the quality of everything but <laughs> yeah you know.
0: well we appreciate you brit you uh giving us your time. Um, we, uh, this book gun control and the third Reich of yours, uh, became on my radar because I saw it on Instagram. I saw you make a, uh, make a comment or something like that. And, um, it's the first I'd heard of the book. So, um, someone provided the book to me and, um, I've uh, taken a look at it, and I thought, i got to get this guy on the podcast. Um, Looks like it's not brand new. I was mistaken uh, initially a few months ago when I got it, 2013. But um, you've been in um, this debate about gun control for quite a while. Is that correct? That's right. Um, Is it correct that you uh, won the U.S. Supreme Court decision, Prince versus the United States in 1997?
1: I was very fortunate to win that case. That case had to do with whether the federal government can basically conscript the states to enforce its laws.
0: Right. And Scalia held for a majority, uh, kind of a thin majority, uh, based on, not on the 10th Amendment, as I recall, but separation of powers argument, the structure of the Constitution that this violates separation of powers is that right
1: yeah it, it's really both of those um, okay. the 10th amendment is kind of the premise of the separation of powers between the states and the federal government and and so it just states a reality of that separation of powers
0: okay sometimes that's called federalism is that what you Exactly talking? yeah or
2: dual sovereignty whatever yes
0: dr holbrook you have a phd uh what's your phd in
1: It's in philosophy from Florida State University. I also have a law degree from Georgetown University.
0: Which degree are you more proud of?
1: (laughs) They've (laughs) both been very useful. Um, Philosophy was great for training and for looking at the classics. Uh, Many philosophers are kind of like in the clouds, and uh, the law degree is important for practical things, but then the minds of lawyers sometimes is too narrow and so it was a great combination to allow me to hopefully have some expanded thoughts and and still be in reality.
0: Which degree did you do first?
1: Uh, The philosophy degree.
0: Oh wow. So you came to your work as an attorney as a kind of a scholar actually. Is that fair to say?
1: Yeah and so I was always interested in um the academic side of law and particularly the second amendment issues.
0: This book. um, And I'm, I'm uh, I don't know the historical debate. So, uh, but this book claims to fill. uh, a, A gap in historical research about the period right before nazi germany why sometimes it's called the weimar republic um, and what you did was um s- talk about the gun control policies that were put in place i think starting in 1928 based on my notes from your book um you say in 1928, the liberal Weimar Republic adopted Germany's first comprehensive gun control law. Uh, the era ended with a decree requiring registration of all firearms and authorizing officials to confiscate all firearms, which could only have been enforced against persons who had registered them. Uh, that, among other things, is something that caught my eye you're very careful in this introduction um you say i think i might just focus on the introduction for my part because we uh, we have limited time but um you you talk about the relevance of this period for our period and you you you're careful not to overstate anything you're not saying gun control caused the holocaust which would be an absurd thing to say but i think what you're saying is Um, historians have overlooked the role of gun control in understanding the Holocaust. Is that fair to say?
1: That's fair to say. And let me add that the book actually starts with the end of the Great War, Um, the Versailles Treaty. And it goes up until the beginning of the next war so that we have the Weimar Republic period, and then we have the National Socialist period up until the beginning of the war. And those are the crucial periods for this gun control debate. Um, there were some who argued that uh, based on the Versailles Treaty, all guns had to be turned in by all Germans. Um, there were revolts, there were two communist revolts that resulted in a lot of bloodshed and confiscation of guns and shooting people just because they had guns. and Finally, there was some semblance of order restored. And in 1928, the, the year that you mentioned is when the first comprehensive federal law, I'll call it a federal law on uh, on guns uh, was enacted because before that it was the, the states or the lander which enacted gun control legislation. The, the 1928 law made it um, possible to acquire guns through a licensing system So you had to get permission of the authorities. uh, And you had some clauses that were very general, like um, people who are not trustworthy cannot be allowed to have guns. And so those are sort of weasel words that uh, in some contexts might be good, in other contexts, not so. And then in 1931, registration was passed by the Weimar Republic. And boy, did that make it convenient for when Hitler came to power in 1933 because what they did is they the Nazis went through the gun registration list and they canceled all the the gun permits by their political enemies and that would be social democrats, uh, moderates and even some conservatives and the the subtitle the, the book is called gun control of the third Reich the subtitle um disarming the yes. uh, Jews and enemies of the state and yeah. they they disarmed enemies of the state first that would be the political enemies that was in 1933 and so they basically smashed their political enemies they seized to- total power and then they had the emergency laws and that was left over from the weimar republic the government could declare an emergency uh, and then take away civil liberties and so it was intended for so-called good purposes then it was put to bad purposes and then we go into 1938 uh, that's when the confiscation of, of guns from Jews was initiated and it, it culminated in rice crystal night knocked or the night of the broken glass, which is so well known, but what is not known is that the major component was to seize the firearms of Jewish people.
0: Yeah, I did not know that that was the main push behind that crystal thing. thing. Um, this is all based on a premise, which I thought you clearly articulated well very early in the book, um, which is, well, actually there's two and they're related. One is that, um, well, I'll just quote you, a skeptic might surmise that a better armed populace might've made no difference in terms of what the Nazis were able to do. That's I'm, I'm paraphrasing your quote, but um, this is back to you, but the Nazi regime certainly did not act on that premise that is very interesting to me because you might think well how can you fight against the nazis how can you fight against a military you know realistically how can you resist that kind of tyranny well i i I really love that you said that because the nazis certainly thought it was important for them to disarm their enemies uh why do you think that was
1: Look, they were realistic. They know that guns shoot and that um,
0: they were trying to protect their soldiers,
1: their soldiers, police, Gestapo. Um, Look, when you have an armed people, they have the ability to resist tyranny. That doesn't mean they're going to win, but it might mean they can um, alleviate some of the, the bad things that would happen. It might mean they would win. If you go up in history to the uh, Warsaw Ghetto Uprising of 1943, for example, in Warsaw, Poland, Jews were being deported to the death camps, and a, a group of young Jewish men and women, they started with only four or five handguns, they used those to shoot some German soldiers and get rifles, and the Ghetto Uprising went on for weeks, and it stopped the deportations, and some of them lived to tell the tale. They escaped into the forest and kept fighting in the resistance. And so we don't know what history would have been like had we had Germany had not had gun registration going back to the Weimar Republic. Um, One of the ways that Hitler was able to basically get total power was dividing these different groups. You had the different political opponents of the Nazis, you had the Jews, um, and they were able to to disarm the political opponents first, as we talked about, and then the Jews after that. But you you could have had some resistance. You you could have had some uh, deportation stopped, or maybe you would have some police being shot who were trying to grab Jews and take them away. Uh, individual resistance and and group resistance, and we don't know what would have happened. But what we do know is that the gun confiscation efforts certainly made the political opponents powerless and then made the Jews powerless and so it's a, a part of history of the, of national socialism that's really nobody covered before now and and I don't know why I mean there's so many aspects of that history that uh, there are so many books on on that topic it's incredible yeah. uh there's a book called the Nazi war on cancer how they were trying to do something about tobacco and uh, i mean one little topic after another and and then the big picture of seizing guns so you can round up jews and put them in the concentration camps that was just left unsaid
0: so the nazis were concerned about public health (laughs) you could you could do that and and public health is a, a sometimes a convenient way for a government to aggrandize itself with power at the expense of individual liberty. Um, you, have a, you also identify a second premise, which, which I thought was key and interesting. I'm going to quote you. With a selective memory of historical events, a movement currently exists in the United States and Europe that denies the existence of any right to keep and bear arms for citizens, I think you mean you say that later, that firearms should be restricted to the military and police. <clears throat> I'm going to skip down a little bit. The paradigm that government should have a monopoly of small arms implies the surreal normative postulate that citizens. Or rather, subjects should be treated as the Jews were in Nazi Germany. Now, what's interesting about that quote, and I think it's just dead on, is it? It's really talking about the dissent, for example, in Heller versus D.C. Uh, if I have that correct, uh, St- uh, Justice Stevens, I believe it was uh, that that was denying an individual right to keep and bear arms on the part of citizens. And you're saying that that, that issue right there is really the heart of it. Is that, do I, am I reading you right?
1: Yeah, look at it this way. Uh, throughout history, there's been disfavored groups and maybe the public in general who are not considered as having rights. Uh, if, if we look at the days of slavery in the US, African-Americans could not have guns in the Southern states. And if you look at Nazi Germany, Jews could not have guns. And in the Heller case, uh, you're correct, Justice Stevens wrote in his dissent that uh, the Second Amendment doesn't guarantee any person a right to keep and bear arms. I mean, it just says the right of the people, that's all. We can disregard that. Uh, he argued that it's some kind of militia-based right that the states have. And uh, it's, it's kind of funny the people really who are against so-called states' rights and certainly against states militias uh somehow go overboard yeah. to protect that when if you if you go back to the 70s yeah. they thought the national guard should be abolished and uh be be that as it may, um if you say that people don't have an inherent right to keep in bare arms, and keep in mind Heller said it's a pre-existing right. It's not a right that the Second Amendment made up. Uh, it, it goes back through our history and, and basically to a natural rights foundation. And and it has to do with the ability of people to protect themselves from those who would do violence. That would be criminals, it could be invading forces, it could be uh, a tyranny. Uh, you can fast forward to today and look at what's going on in Ukraine. Uh, they They debated whether to have a Second Amendment kind of right back in 2013 and 14 and And it was not adopted instead. the Russians came into crimea and and now and now we see the the Ukrainian government suddenly seeing what a valuable right it is. They, when the invasion came, they gave out thousands of of rifles to the civilians to, so they could help uh, defend the country.
0: It's kind of an awkward time to learn how to use a rifle.
1: Uh, right. And they started training people. I read this in the paper. They started training people two or three days before the invasion. Please.
2: <laughs> Lucas, could I sneak in? Cause I have yeah, absolutely a, a question. So I know we're talking about the other book, but uh, this one is one of my favorites. Uh, can I get it in focus, focus. there? I there do. you go. If it's closer um, to you,
0: it'll be in focus.
2: Yeah. So what's it um, called? The,
0: the founder's second amendment.
2: Correct. And uh
0: I have not read that book, so but not, not yet. I was hoping maybe I could get him come back on and talk about that book.
2: But so, um, obviously, we're talking uh, preamble, operative clause of the Second Amendment, and I have an interesting little intersection here. But to to set it up, obviously, there's this ongoing collective right, individual right debate, even after Heller, which is maybe a little bit surprising, but um, you well, know, it was
0: only five to four, so
2: yeah. Does it really I mean, count? Look at right? Roe
0: versus Wade, that was seven to two, and look at that.
2: Yeah, we're well, still talking true. about that. So um, given that, um, I guess my uh the first piece is why do we think it's difficult given the historical evidence we've seen in the Third Reich and other places, our own history to understand that armed individuals are a predicate to form a militia. Um, it's obviously necessary uh, that you have armed individuals in order to create a militia. Um, it, it seems like somehow, I don't know, maybe it's just because it's written in the other order that it becomes difficult for folks to understand that you know that's the logical flow announce a purpose, and then here's how we fulfill that purpose Uh, seems to be the way it's written, but logically, you're required to have a firearm in order to be able to form an effective militia. Um, Why do we think that's still so ongoing, the collective right versus individual right? Is it based in the text, or does it come from emotion or somewhere else?
1: It's based totally on an attempt to negate the second amendment right this doctrine about collective rights was mostly made up in the 1960s to support growing gun control the federal gun control act Um, they tried to get registration through congress that failed but they got a lot of other restrictions it's a totally fabricated doctrine look at the amendments language a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state okay that states a, a proposition of, about political philosophy, and then it goes on to say the right of the people to keep in their arms shall not be infringed. What could be unclear about the right of the people? It's in the yeah. First Amendment right to assemble. Well, it's in the know, Fourth to... Amendment right against unreasonable searches and seizures. Are you, saying you that, and me.
0: are you saying that the Fourth Amendment doesn't protect the government from itself? or is it you're saying that it protects individuals from the government is that what i hear you saying?
1: yeah um, how how shocking the the first amendment
0: doesn't it reference something about the right of people to petition the government it's not the right of the government to petition itself right
1: not not the the power of government to decide who can petition it or who can be secure in their person's papers houses and effects or who, who can keep and bear arms
0: Well, I think people, well, when I've taught the Second Amendment at the undergraduate level constitutional law um, at Cal State Fullerton, uh, my students um, are persuaded by that, I think, once they think about it. But it is a little bit odd in the Second Amendment with with the way it's worded. Would would you say it's fair to say that that, um, that first clause there, that dependent clause is a sufficient condition it's not a necessary condition for the right of the people it's a sufficient condition really? so in other words it, so in other not, words right this yes, is a, not
1: necessary you, we're you just stating this
0: them. is enough the the right the the necessity of a a, of a militia security. for yeah. a security of a free state that being the case that's enough reason for us to it's a sufficient condition for us to Uh, guarantee the right of the people, that is individuals, First Amendment, Fourth Amendment, Ninth Amendment, the people to keep and bear arms. Would you say that's fair to say? Because you have a PhD in philosophy. So it's
1: fair to say. I know you're following this. Yeah. And and look, they wouldn't have said duck hunting being lots of fun. You have a right or they wouldn't even (laughs) say the need to protect yourself from criminals being necessary for your security. They didn't say that because there was no federal power to regulate guns to start with. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and what they were interested in is reminding folks that a militia is important. There was the standing army experience with the Brits, the Redcoats. Uh, They were disfavored. The the anti-federalists would have gone further and had more state powers over militias. Uh, If you look at Article 1, Section 8, there's the congressional power over militias and Uh, they could call up the militia to suppress insurrection or invasion, things like that. Uh, So that's why that got stuck in there. It was a compromise to say something good about the militia, even though it it did not um, say anything more about the state versus federal powers over the militia.
2: Can I return to the standing army thing? So this is my intersection uh, hidden in my deep, dark past. I, Uh, Went to the school created in 1802, signed into law by President Jefferson. Uh, So I was part of the big evil standing army uh, up until 2020 when I retired um, that was feared. And so when we look at the the Second Amendment, there's talk of individuals, the people. There's talk of a militia. There's not talk of a standing army. And I think one argument that, that might get missed and it's putting, you know, stark relief by the historical context is if you have, as Stevens would have um, had us believe, that you're only entitled to a right to own firearms, if you're in the National Guard, the Army right. Reserve, or, you know, you're part of the active component. Um, then everything becomes centralized essentially in a standing army. The army reserve is controlled by big army. Uh, of course, the uh, um, national guard is in control of state government. Governors normally under title 32, but it could be Title 10 at any time. So it, it essentially could become all standing army. So if that is what you think the, the second amendment means, then only the standing army could ever be entitled to own firearms and you know it it was clear that we had a fear of a standing army We couldn't get a military academy 1802 because of it because nobody wanted a standing army and in fact we went so far as to put in the text of the second amendment that hey the militia is really what's going to defend um You know, the the country from invasion, it it worked, you know, during the revolution, debatably. Um, But no one ever seems to talk about if you run that logic out of Stephen's descent, that's where you end up. And I am confused why more Second Amendment advocates don't run that out. Uh, Probably maybe it's a little too complex. You need, you know, 144 characters to make your point, I guess.
1: Well, look at uh, Stevens' dissent more closely. He starts off by saying the Second Amendment protects the right basically to bear arms in a militia. Well, no, it doesn't. You, okay, the, okay, the National Guard <laughs> is the active militia under federal law. And you can't even be in the, the National Guard unless they say you can be in it. If you want to volunteer, there's age restrictions, there's health, there's everything else. There, there's personnel restrictions, like we don't need anybody else right now. So there is no right to bear arms in the militia. Right. Where does that right come from? There's a right to have arms in case you're going to be in the militia. But a a militia, I mean, look, you were in the service. That's a command society. You do what you're told. Yes. Um, I don't say, oh, I want to bear arms today. And and when the commanding officer is telling me to do something else, hello. So Stephen's dissent is totally superficial he he yeah. has about three or four sentences where he says that, and then he goes on and on page after page about how the founders were interested in and liked the militia. Well, yeah, we can agree with that, but that doesn't mean they were against the right to keep and bear arms. I mean, that's how, like right. you said at the beginning of this, that uh, how you would enable a militia to exist.
0: Well, there's a storage issue too. I mean, like I bought my first firearm when I was active duty and, uh, there were all sorts of regulations on, in place on the, on the military base about what I could do with that firearm. And I could not store it in the barracks. <laughs> so where is the right to bear? Where is this? Let's say I move off base. It turns out I had a, more of a right to, to keep in bear arms off base than I did on base because off base, I was, I was in an apartment and even in the crazy state of Hawaii, <laughs> where they wanted me to register my ammunition <laughs> 50 rounds of ammunition i bought at walmart um huh. that uh back when you could buy it at walmart um nobody ever came to my apartment uh, from the military but uh, yeah that's a, then it's a storage issue like if you're in the militia um where are these arms stored you don't have a right to store them at home
1: the right it says keep and bear yeah keeping is at home
0: well you have it seems like so much of this book this third right book is um you i think you do a careful job of of preventing a rhetorical sloppy rhetorical replies to it where people might um straw man you uh by by um implying that uh, you're, you're saying that gun control causes, um, the kind of thing you, we saw that, and you say that this is the, the the Holocaust was obviously a unique event in, 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 in human history, but you say that, um, some polemicists might overstate the relationship between gun control and genocide, but what is worse is the failure of scholars to come to terms with the real connection between disarming policies and oppression. Those are your words. Um, It seems like it goes back to that simple thing you said that that Heller said, that this is a pre-existing right. So the question is whether the government... Really has this store of, of authority? Maybe it has the power, like the making a distinction between power and authority. But having power is not the same thing as having a right. Is that what you're saying?
1: You can look at Congress's powers in Article One, Section Eight. There's nothing in there about confiscating guns. And then you look to the Second Amendment and the right of the people to keep and bear arms. Uh, the federal government passed the National Firearms Act in 1934 based on its tax power it said well mm. we're going to tax certain firearms and we're going to require them to be registered so you prove that you paid the tax and then they get involved with the interstate commerce clause and say well guns that have right. crossed state lines we have the power to regulate them cuz we can regulate interstate commerce
0: that was the prince the prince thing was a commerce power case right the prince yeah, case
1: the, the, the in that case uh, the Supreme Court denied they had that power. Right. So let me make a, a plug for another book because it's a sequel to the, the book that we're talking about. I don't okay. Know if this is visible. Oh, is that new or is that? Well, this one came a few years later, and this is um, oh, gun wow. control in Nazi-occupied France: tyranny and resistance. And this follows the the first book because in the first book I wanted to show how the pre-war policies in Germany defeated um, political opponents and Jews, and then it always struck me how in the every country that the Nazis invaded, they confiscated the guns from those populations. My original plan was to cover the occupied countries in general, but that'd be too hard so I focused on France, and and it's the same old story. Um, then the Nazis, when they came to any village or town, they'd put up a poster that said, turn in your guns within 24 hours or we're going to shoot you. A- and then then the France enters into this armistice with Germany and the French administration, including the police, were going to work for the Germans and the French police had the registration records. And and guess what? Um wow. the, the French people who were dumb enough to register their guns they better turn them in quick. As a matter of fact, though, a lot of guns were not registered, and a lot of people just hid their guns. If you go through the French newspapers, you'll see the the Nazis controlled the newspapers, so they announced every time they were going to execute somebody for having a gun and not turning it in. But um, it's the same phenomena. Uh, And and in fact, uh, in Ukraine right now, we're reading reports about they're looking for lists of gun owners and hunters. The Russians are. When they when they conquer places
0: i did not hear that wow
1: so what's what could go wrong with gun registration what possibly you know and in yeah. fact there was a, one of these anti-gun organizations did a report gunpolicy.org is the name of it and they were complaining a few years ago about all the numbers of ukrainians who were undocumented gun owners they didn't have their guns registered well i'll tell you what if i was a gun owner in ukraine right now i would hope to be undocumented
0: yes the the publisher of this book is the independent institute I, I, what i love about this uh, is is your follow up book the nazi occupied france one is that also in a, what i love yes. about that i was going to ask publisher okay i was going to ask you about that i see it's got a california address on the back and what i love it's got a phone number and, and a website so you can call anybody can fax or call if they see this book i love that um what tell us about the independent Institute and we're interested because we're in California and we're interested that it's a California, Oakland uh, address. How did, how did that uh, come about?
1: Well, the independent Institute is basically oriented to the free market, to civil liberties, uh, the kinds of things that made America great. It's a think tank and public policy organization. Uh, The founder is David Thoreau um it's it's been in existence quite a long time and they support different projects uh in favor of a free society they publish books uh they they have presentations and uh, support research and so it's it's a great organization and i'm i'm a senior fellow with the independent institute and um i'm looking forward to working with them further you can go to their website just Google independent Institute, and you'll find more information or for myself, um, Stephen Hallbrook.com is my website. And, um, on my books, you can just Google my name, Stephen Hallbrook, and, uh, you'll find all, all the other books, uh, second amendment books, and these books on, um, the third, right.
0: How did you get interested in the second amendment personally? And, and how the, how, how the heck do you have time to write all these books?
1: Well, um, it's been a personal fashion back in the sixties. I was a college kid and um, I was interested in the second amendment because there was a lot of debate about it then, if you remember. Yeah, in yes, 1968
0: mid- gun control act. Yeah. That's right. You mentioned and, that.
1: And I was an undergraduate at the time. I was doing some research in the Florida Supreme court on, in their library on, on the um, background of the second amendment. And I, I just quickly discovered there was very little literature on the subject and so i i set out to make it my goal to um uh, do more research and, and writing on it To and then later when i became a lawyer to litigate on second amendment issues it, it's it's one of those kinds of rights that some people love to hate and there were attempts yes. starting in the 60s to obliterate the right and and that was only uh, well all the way up to the heller case there were people who h- hoped that. Heller would go the other way and the court would declare that nobody has a right to keep in their arms. And we won by the skin of our teeth though. Scary. Yeah.
0: Did you originally want to be a professor? Is that why you did the PhD?
1: Um, I, that that's basically true. I was more interested in, in philosophy, political philosophy, social philosophy at the time, uh, than law. I mean, law can be very boring. I mean, your contracts and torts and all of that, but, um, <laughs> Uh, but but the the legal side is very important to fight for your rights in court and so uh both of those appealed to me
0: tobin did you have anything else you wanted to ask no i know
2: we're up against time here so i managed to uh sneak in all of my most important stuff and I, i greatly appreciate this opportunity um both uh, for you, Dr. Mather, and you, I'm like the only non-doctor here today. It's so sad. <laughs> well, you have a uh, jurist, Dr. I appreciate it. Ah, it doesn't yeah, count. that counts. Uh,
0: well, it's a D. It's good. It's, it, that, that's good. That's where the D comes from.
2: Yeah, exactly. I got a whole lot of Ds um, <laughs> during my uh, academic tenure. But no, no nothing further I'd, other than I, I just really appreciate the opportunity. So thank you both.
0: Dr. Hallbrook, um, we're going to link the book up and link the independent Institute. We'll link your website as well, uh, on the show notes of this. Um, but we wanted to ask you one more question and that is what can we do to advance, um, the fundamental right of, of self-defense with the firearm? Well, um, the, I mean, the like you said, we answer. won. We won by the skin of our teeth and color. Right. So, I mean, what do we do here?
1: The the first easy answer is vote for the right people, and vote the bad ones out. And then it just depends on your station in life. You know, use your influence. And if you're a gun owner, help other gun owners. You know, there's so many new gun owners starting in 2020. Uh, it's off the charts. People who never owned a gun in their life, but we had the riots and we had the the COVID and we had the elections. And that scared millions of people into buying guns for the first time. So, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, take your kid out to the shooting range, things like that. It's it's a culture, and and if if you want to be able to protect yourself, that's important to do. You have freedom of choice. You don't have to. But uh, I've known plenty of people who are not gun owners, but they very much support the Second Amendment because if if you let that right go, the the other ones are in line to do the same. So, uh, do whatever you can.
0: Well, we thank you for coming on. Um, I'm just curious, were you scared to go up in front of the Supreme Court at all? Were you nervous at all? Did you have any fear? Were you just like totally confident and set?
1: Well, uh, you would think you would have fear. I did not because I, I was involved in the Prince case from the very beginning. We had several district court cases I handled. We had multiple courts of appeals that we worked in. I've done other Supreme Court cases, argued other cases, and won them as well. And um, I, I felt like I knew more than anybody in the courtroom about the issues that we were dealing with because that was my total focus. And if you look at the government lawyers, they they have a pecking order, so they have somebody different at ev- every judicial level. And 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 I my experience has been some of them are wonderful, great litigators, but th- there's a lot of gaps in their knowledge. So. Uh, that's to the advantage of somebody who does it at every level of the judicial system.
0: Dr. Stephen Halbrook, we thank you for joining us today.
1: Great to be on the show. Thank you for having me.